0: It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 185 for March 21st, 2010. Recorded March 20th, 2010. Malware. The threat continues to worsen, bad guys become more devious, more daring, they get smarter. The good guys work to create resources to avoid, identify, and eliminate malware. Practicing safe computing is crucial because you can't depend on software alone to protect you. But there are applications that can help. This week and for the next two weeks, I'll look at some of the applications you can use to help in the battle to keep your computer safe. This week's topic is avoidance. Next week, we'll consider how to identify security threats that might be on your computer. And the third week's topic will be malware removal. Let's start by defining malware, and I'll let Wikipedia do that. Malware, short for malicious software, is software designed to infiltrate a computer system without the owner's informed consent. The expression is a general term used by computer professionals to mean a variety of forms of hostile, intrusive, or annoying software. The term computer virus is sometimes used as a catch-all phrase to include all types of malware, including true viruses. Software is considered malware based on the perceived intent of the creator rather than any particular features. Malware includes computer viruses, worms, Trojan horses, most rootkits, spyware, dishonest adware, crimeware, and other malicious and unwanted software. In other words, it's stuff you don't want on your computer. Avoidance is better than repair for a lot of reasons. Here are two. Cleaning an infected computer takes time. Maybe a lot of it. And depending on what malware was installed, your personal information may have been exposed to people you don't want to see it. There is no one-size-fits-all application that will protect against everything. You undoubtedly have an antivirus application. Many antivirus providers have expanded their applications to include additional security measures. Although email continues to be a primary vector for malware, the web is increasingly the fraudster's choice because many of us continue to use outdated and vulnerable browsers. This is the computer equivalent of driving a car that has no functional brakes. When I researched the current crop of free and paid protective applications near the end of 2009, I surprised myself by selecting Norton Internet Security 2010. Norton Internet Security includes a toolbar that installs into Internet Explorer and Mozilla Firefox. If you try to follow a link that's known to be unsafe, the application will display a warning and provide additional information about the potential threat. When you're on a site, Norton Internet Security summarizes the site with regards to computer threats, identity theft threats, and general annoyances. You'll find a full report button that leads to specifics about the site. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see that I picked up an example of a site in Italy that attempts to run an application that disguises itself as a Windows update. It would use that technology to install malware. You can ignore the warnings from Norton Internet Security, or you could even disable the function. Ignoring the warning would be okay if you're certain that the site you're visiting is safe, but I see no reason to disable Norton SafeWeb. It's all too easy to make a mistake when you're tired, distracted, or in a hurry. Having that extra little safeguard could save you a lot of time. Your antivirus program should also contain protection against rootkits. A rootkit is an example of good software gone bad. Originally used to gain control of an unresponsive system, now rootkits are used as malware to give intruders secret access to systems. Rootkits are particularly dangerous because they're designed to be invisible. Attackers usually replace critical system files by tricking a user into running an application, a Trojan horse, that makes the switch. Keeping your antivirus program updated is important, too. If you're old enough, you may remember quarterly or even annual antivirus update disks that arrived by mail. Then the updates began being delivered online every month or so, and then every week, and every day. Norton Internet Security, and most of the current crop of antivirus programs, check for updates every few minutes, and I usually get several downloads of new updates per day. Antivirus applications sometimes include a firewall. Users of Windows XP or earlier systems should activate that firewall or some other third-party firewall. Vista and Windows 7 both have adequate firewalls, but previous versions of Windows had a substandard firewall or none at all. If you choose to run the antivirus applications firewall under Vista or Windows 7, the operating system will automatically disable the Windows firewall. As with most applications of this sort, you don't want to have two of them running. Two is not better than one. And it's a good idea to test your computer's firewall from time to time. You can do that by visiting the Gibson Research Center Shields Up page. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Run the tests you find there. If the computer doesn't pass all the tests, there's a problem with the firewall. Ideally, when you run the full port scan, all the ports should be listed in full stealth mode. The application you use should include network monitoring if you have a LAN at home, and particularly if part of that LAN is wireless. It may include parental controls that restrict browsing or Internet access. This is a very good way to come to the realization that your children are probably smarter than you are when it comes to outsmarting software that's intended to protect them. Whether you choose the Norton product or some other vendor's product, be sure to walk through the configuration screen so that you'll understand what the application is doing and why. Malware, and I'm sure this is no surprise to anybody, is sneaky, but it's often fairly easy to identify. If it's running on your computer, it should show up in a list of running processes. So this week, I'll show you a way to identify the normal processes, things that should be running on your computer. Once you've done this, you'll be able to identify new processes, and this information will help you determine whether a process is good or bad. You need to know which processes are okay and should be running. The Microsoft Process Explorer creates a baseline report on a clean machine. You can run the Process Explorer occasionally to identify new processes. And when you find a new process, don't assume that it's bad. It might just be a process that has been spawned by a new or old application that you installed intentionally. Use a search engine to investigate the name of the process, and I'll tell you more about that in just a moment. The Microsoft Process Explorer is from Sys Internals. That's a company that Microsoft acquired from Bruce Cogswell and Mark Rusinovich in 2006. No installation is required. Just unpack the zip file and run it. The Process Explorer is a complex tool, and it can do a lot of damage to your computer if you misuse it. But it's the best tool available when it comes to creating a baseline summary of applications. You can expect a full report on the Process Explorer later. And you can replace the basic task manager with Process Explorer. Once you try it for a bit, I would recommend that you do that, because Process Explorer does everything the task manager can do, and a lot more. Creating the baseline file is easy. Run Process Explorer, hide the lower pane if it happens to be showing, then save a copy of the file that it offers to create. This file will contain the contents of the process pane as a tab-delimited text file. You can open that in any spreadsheet program. If you suspect a malware infection, it's easy to compare the baseline file with a new file. This doesn't provide a definitive answer, though. Processes can come and go for legitimate reasons, so it's important to avoid the temptation to delete a file responsible for what appears to be a new process. Doing so might make the problem worse. If you need a technician to take a look at your computer, this is the kind of information the technician will find helpful. Before you take any action, you should at least perform a Google search on the process name, or you can use an even faster method. Just visit UnitBlues process library and learn more about what the file is, what it does, and whether you really want it. You'll find a link to the process library on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and next week I'll help you establish a system baseline that'll help you find malware infections. <coughs> Let's talk about the domain name service. Hold it, hold it. This is one of those techie accounts that might tend to scare you away, but it shouldn't because it's really not all that complicated, even though it sounds intimidating. So stick with me for just a moment, and maybe I'll convince you that you should change your DNS server and that you can change your DNS server. DNS is an initialism for domain name service. The DNS server is responsible for converting a name that makes sense to you, like Microsoft.com, to something that computers can use, like 65.55.12.249. Your internet service provider converts Microsoft.com to that IP address, all those numbers strung together. So if your ISP already does this, why would you want to use some other service? Let's go back to Wikipedia for just a moment and get a definition of the domain name service. It is a hierarchical naming system for computer services, or any other resource connected to the Internet or a private network. It associates various information with domain names assigned to each of the participants. Most importantly, it translates domain names meaningful to humans into numerical binary identifiers associated with networking equipment for the purpose of locating and addressing these devices worldwide. An often used analogy to explaining the domain name system is that it serves as a phone book for the Internet by translating human-friendly computer host names into IP addresses. That's a good definition from Wikipedia. And phone book is the key concept. You type a name that you can remember. The DNS server looks up that name and uses the associated number to make the connection. Because of this, you don't need to remember a series of cryptic numbers. So why would you want to use a third-party DNS service instead of the one provided by your ISP? And why might you want to pay $10 a year for a service that you already receive for free? Here's why. Your ISP probably doesn't protect you from the creeps who try to con you into providing information about your bank or credit card. Open DNS will. The free OpenDNS service can warn you if you accidentally click a dangerous link. If someone tries to send you to a known phishing website, OpenDNS blocks the site and tells you about the site's malicious intent. But that's not all. OpenDNS is probably faster and more accurate than the DNS your ISP provides. OpenDNS has a global network of servers with software that routes DNS requests to the OpenDNS server that's physically closest to you. So, in short, there's really no reason not to do it. Your ISP's DNS will connect you to the right IP address if you spell the domain name right, and that's about it. OpenDNS will do that, but it includes several valuable free features. OpenDNS really has your back. OpenDNS identifies those known phishing sites and alerts you if you try to visit one. If you still want to go to the site, you can, but at least you've been warned. And it provides address corrections. Type an incorrect URL, say, Microsoft, with a U instead of an I. And OpenDNS will suggest that maybe you're looking for Microsoft if the domain name you requested isn't active. If it is, of course, it'll take you there. If the domain is active, all OpenDNS can do is take you. For example, try Microsoft with a Y, -Y M-Y-C-R-O-S-O-F-T dot com. And you'll go to Microsoft.com with a Y. The name is owned by what's called a typo squatter, and legitimate businesses pay to have their ads placed on these sites. If you find yourself on a typo squatter's site, my recommendation is just to back out of it as quickly as you can. Click no links. So there's really nothing that can protect you from that. OpenDNS allows you to customize the experience, too. You can add an image of your choosing and a personalized message to the OpenDNS guide for pages that don't exist or are blocked. If you're using the service's parental controls, this could impress your children. The OpenDNS guide offers suggestions when you mistype a URL or try to visit a site that's down. In other words, it replaces those cryptic 404 error pages. Open DNS gives you more than 50 filtering categories to choose from. Simply check the boxes of categories you want to block, and the filtering goes into effect in just minutes. As with any service of this sort, I recommend caution because the blocks can have unintended consequences. If you select weapons, for example, your children may have trouble searching for information about World War II. Or if you select pornography, some scientific sites that deal with genetics or sexuality might be blocked. I mentioned you could pay for this service if you wanted to. If you're interested in giving your family access only to sites that you have specifically approved, the paid version is what you need. If you trust your spouse and children, maybe all you need is the free version. The free version will round you to a search page if you type a domain name that doesn't exist. That's how the company monetizes its service. That's why it's able to offer it for free. The primary advantage is that the search page is a legitimate page, not the kind you might find if your ISP's DNS server couldn't find the page. Setting up OpenDNS is easy, very easy. It depends on whether you have a router or not. If you do have a router, you need to log on to the router and change the DNS settings from the default, which is probably obtained from the ISP, to the two OpenDNS IP addresses. Complete instructions are provided on the OpenDNS site for a lot of different router brands. If you don't have a router, you need to configure your computer's network settings, and OpenDNS provides instructions for just about everybody. Windows XP, Vista 2000, NT98, Windows 7, and even the Millennium Edition. For Mac, OS 9 and OS 10. For Linux, SUSE and Ubuntu. And it even provides instructions for the Wii. So the bottom line for OpenDNS 5CATS, it's DNS that's better than what your ISP offers. The ability to block phishing sites alone is worth the small effort required to set up OpenDNS. And to that, other features that the service provides and the fact that it's probably faster than your ISP's DNS makes this a decision that really doesn't require much thought. For more information, you can visit the OpenDNS website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Beep. In early January, I wrote about the God Mode under Windows 7. It involves creating a directory that can be named anything. Instead of God Mode, I named mine Devil's Playground. The special directory makes a huge list of Windows functions available. At the same time, I reported that Ina Freed at CNET News had a list of other special directories from Microsoft. She didn't know what they all were, neither did I. Well, now I do. You'll find information about the others on the TechBiter Worldwide website they turn out not to be particularly useful. Keep in mind that they don't work in Windows XP. Some will work in Windows Vista. All should work in the Windows 732-bit version. I thought they would all work in the Windows 764-bit version, but one of them didn't. There's not much point to using these. The original God Mode made a lot of functions easily accessible. The others simply make available functions you can find pretty quickly in the control panel. So I haven't used any of them, but at least now I know where they go. In short circuits, it seems that I now own a multi-million dollar computer. The cost of solid-state memory and disk space has dropped so fast over the past few years that it's nearly impossible to comprehend. If somebody had told me in 1985 that I would one day own a computer with 8 gigabytes of solid-state memory, or RAM, I would have thought that person to be a fool, or crazy, or both. I had just paid several hundred dollars to increase the RAM in my first computer, well, my first IBM-type computer, from 256 kilobytes to 320 kilobytes. In those days, memory cost nearly $1,000 per megabyte. By the end of the year, the price would drop to about $300 per megabyte, but at those prices, a gigabyte of memory would cost $30,000. Eight gigabytes would go for 240000 In the mid-'80s, a computer with a lot of memory, a lot of memory, had one megabyte of RAM. I would have been skeptical even in the mid-1990s. Memory cost around $30 per megabyte then, but 8 gigabytes would have still set me back $24,000, and I simply wouldn't have been able to visualize a personal computer with that much memory. Today, RAM costs less than 5 cents per megabyte, so I found that I could entertain the thought of 8 gigabytes of memory. And I continue to say this about memory. If you want a faster computer... The most cost-effective way of achieving your goal is to add as much memory as the system can use. Oh, and if that same person had told me in 1985 that I would own a computer with nearly 4 terabytes of disk storage, I would have probably had him committed. But that's what I have now. It's on my desktop. Times change. (music) At the bottom of each page in the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see a small advertisement for Bluehost.com. You might think I do this because Bluehost pays me when someone signs up for an account after clicking the link. Well, that's true. They pay. Not a lot. But they do pay. There's another reason, though. I believe the company provides excellent service for what it charges. Beyond that, top management continues to be accessible when something goes wrong. Here's an example. On March 13th, I tried to connect to my website to replace a file, and my credentials were rejected. FTP can report rejections, but not reasons. I thought I'd see if the control panel would tell me anything. And when I tried to log on, I was told that I had to change my password. It was a security issue, the message said. The problem was easy enough to fix, but I wondered why Bluehost hadn't notified me in advance. So I wrote to the Bluehost CEO and asked about that. Keep in mind that Bluehost.com is an organization that hosts hundreds of thousands of websites. Yet, a few hours later, Bluehost CEO Matt Heaton replied, and I quote, There was a botnet actively trying to brute force user accounts, and some with very weak passwords were being cracked. The velocity of the attack warranted immediate action on our part, and any advance notice would have alerted the botnet to quicken its attacks. This is the reason we chose to implement it in this way. I completely agree that most times we're very poor when it comes to giving advance notice, but in this instance, I hope you can understand the reasoning behind the implementation. I'm very sorry for the inconvenience. Top management at Bluehost was certainly involved in the effort to keep the system secure, and probably pretty darn busy right about then. Yet the CEO took time to let a small customer, me, know what was going on. That's the way things should work, but seldom do. And that's one of the reasons I stick with Bluehost. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.